Well, good evening, Praxis. I hope you're well tonight and ready and hungry for the Word of God. I'm very thankful for this opportunity to bring the Word of God to you tonight. And I want to thank you to everyone who's been praying for me and my preparations, but also the ones that have been praying for each of you so that you would be blessed by the Word of God tonight. Um, this evening, and you'd be encouraged to love our great God even more than you already do. So thank you for your prayers all this week. Um, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. I'll be reading beginning in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, but our passage for tonight is Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. It reads, But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And what then? Well, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear gracious Lord, we're so thankful of your sovereign love, of your electing love. And even though we struggle in our hearts and our minds at times to understand and appreciate the fullness of your love, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see your amazing, sovereign, faithful love, and help us to see your faithfulness, Lord, in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And thank you, Father, and pray this humbly in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was back in the year 2008 when I finished grad school and I moved from the oh-so-hip Bay Area of California to the oh-so-cold Detroit, Michigan for my first career job. And up to that point, I had been a Roman Catholic and I had lived quite a wayward life, partying it up, pursuing ungodly relationships, going back and forth from being sober and then drowning in drunkenness. And since my high school days, I kept going back and forth from pursuing God in a legalistic form through the Roman Catholic Church and just giving in to all different kinds of impropriety. I'd been exposed to the Bible a little bit, but didn't really know and certainly didn't understand the gospel, even though I lived in sin and in rebellion against God. Through the years, The Lord used various circumstances to demonstrate to me that he indeed does exist 
and he does care about me. So in 2008, after the Lord got me through graduate school, I moved to Michigan and continued to live in a life of sin and perhaps approaching the limits of becoming an alcoholic. And even though I was unfaithful to the Lord, he was incredibly faithful to me, not of his own sovereign love for me. And I had been exposed to some form of Christianity, and the Lord used that to bring me to himself. And one day in 2009, I spoke to some guys at work that I knew were Christians. And I said, hey, I know you're a Christian, and I know I need help. And I know the Roman Catholic Church isn't going to help me because I've been there for so many years, and it's never helped me. So give me some churches that I can visit because I know that I need help. So one of the churches I visited was a Bible preaching church. And I walked in, and for the first time in my life, I heard someone explain the Bible. My mind was blown. My heart was gripped. I had never heard anything like that before in my life. Now, through the months, I attended that church, and I heard the gospel, and the Lord did give me eyes to see and ears to hear. He gave me those eyes and ears to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he saved me. And even though I had lived a life of unfaithfulness to God, the Lord was faithful to me and saved me because of his own sovereign love set upon me. Even though we might be unfaithful to God, God is always faithful to his people. And that's what we're going to see tonight in our passage tonight in Romans chapter 11. So as we've been making our way through the book of Romans, we come through the chapters 9 through 11, which turns our attention to the doctrine of election with respect to the gospel. But at the same time, it also draws our attention to the nation of Israel in particular. Now, you'll recall that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people from all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God made a promise to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And God promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, and that through Israel, God would bless all the nations on the earth. Now, of course, a large part of that blessing through Israel to the nations is the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone. And as we went through several weeks ago in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul explains that the Israelites tried to establish their own righteousness, which is impossible. And instead of obtaining righteousness before God through faith in Christ. And then in verses 5 to 13, Paul launches into the discussion of the necessity of Israel to hear the gospel, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess Jesus as Lord in order for them to be saved. But then in verse 16, Paul explicitly says that not all of Israel has obeyed the gospel. And finally, in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 10, Paul says that Israel has indeed heard the gospel, but they have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected the gospel, and as a result, they've rejected their only hope for being saved and to stand righteously before God. Now, Paul finishes chapter 10 by quoting Isaiah, which says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, given all of this explanation of Israel's hearing of the gospel and subsequently Israel's rejection of the gospel, Paul begins chapter 11 with the opening question. Has God rejected his people? which he answers, of course, with an emphatic no, which brings us to our first point, 
which is God's faithfulness in the election of a remnant in Israel. God's faithfulness in the election of a remnant in Israel. Now again, Paul answers this question, has God rejected his people with an emphatic no? He says, by no means. And he points to himself as an example of the fact that God has not rejected his people, that God has not rejected Israel. He says, essentially, look, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, I'm one of those who was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the one that was circumcised, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee. And I heard the gospel, and I rejected the gospel, and I pursued and persecuted believers in Jerusalem and beyond. But the Lord saved me. And when he appeared to me when I was on the road to Damascus to persecute those believers, he revealed himself to me, and I turned away from my sins. I believed, and I was saved. And therefore, God has not rejected his people, Israel, because I'm one of them, and I have been saved. So that's his first argument, an example that he presents to us, that God has not rejected his people. But then he moves on. Paul goes on and makes his answer even more specific and provides the example of Elijah as well. Now, verse 2, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, Paul introduces this fact that it is indeed God's elect, the ones whom he foreknew that are the proof that God has not rejected Israel. So then Paul quickly plows ahead and he moves on to the example of Elijah. And he says, do you not know what the scripture uh, says of Elijah? Well, what does the scripture say about Elijah? Why is Paul even quoting the Old Testament? What's his point? Well, in order for us to understand any quote of the Old Testament that's used in the New Testament, we first have to understand what the meaning of it was in the Old Testament passage. So Elijah is first introduced to us in 1 Kings 17. Feel free to turn over to 1 Kings. We'll be there for a little bit. 1 Kings 17 is where he's introduced. But at this point in Israel's history, the nation was already divided into two. And they had already divided into two kingdoms after the reign of King Solomon. So Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. As you recall, most of the kings that governed over Israel, that led Israel, were evil. And very frequently we hear that phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But the kings of Israel, who were supposed to lead people according to the laws of God, instead what they did was committed horrible atrocities against God by worshiping idols, allowing for cult prostitutes in the land, and leading the nation into all kinds of pagan worship, including the sacrifice of their own children at one point. But during Elijah's time, it was King Ahab who was reigning over Israel. And it says about Ahab that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab obviously was certainly a wicked king who was married to the infamous Jezebel, who was equally wicked, if not more so. They led the nation of Israel into the worship of Baal. And it says about Ahab that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, it's this kind of spiritual environment that Elijah is on the scene, serving as the prophet of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only true and living God. Now, during Elijah's ministry, he goes and he confronts Ahab. And because of his idolatry, he tells Ahab, send 
Gather all the people of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. You remember what happens next, the showdown between the 850 false prophets and one true prophet, the one true prophet of the one true God of true Israel. And they brought the wood, they brought the two bulls for the sacrifice to make an offering, one for Baal and one for the Lord. And then they were to call out to their gods, and whichever god would send fire from heaven for the burnt offering, that was the true god. So the prophets of Baal started chanting, and they started dancing, and calling on the name of Baal, saying, Oh, Baal, please answer us. And they did that all the way from morning until noon. But hopefully, as we know, there was no answer. Now, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad, you know, at the same time, because it says that they started limping around. Presumably, they were so tired of just dancing around and chanting all this time. And they started crying aloud even more, and they started to cut themselves to see if Baal would bring down the fire. But nothing, nothing happened, no answer. Now, when it was Elijah's turn, he tells them, bring the water, drench the sacrifice, drench the wood and all of the surrounding ground until he had his own little kitty swimming pool right there before them. But Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord once, and whoosh, the fire from God fell on the sacrifice and barbecued the whole thing. The sacrifice, the wood, all of the water was consumed. It was clear that the God of Israel is the only true God, and so Elijah had all the prophets of Baal captured and slaughtered every last one of them. So Elijah comes away victorious, and with a massive victory at that. But if you look over at 1 Kings 19, we see what happens when Jezebel hears about what Elijah did, that he killed all of the prophets of Baal. Remember, she was feeding them at her table, so these were people that she knew, and the prophets and the priests that she had commissioned for her false god. But she didn't repent, she didn't turn to the living God. She wanted to have Elijah executed. She wanted to continue in her worship of Baal and kill the prophet of Israel. So what did he do? We know Elijah fled, right? He was discouraged. He was dismayed all the way to Beersheba, which was some hundred miles away from where they were. He went into the wilderness or the desert, and he even prayed to the Lord, Lord, take away my life. Elijah, clearly here, he was in the dumps, and in his consternation, he was totally ready to give up, but the Lord sustained him. The Lord sustained him, and he was in the desert for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he went all the way over to Mount Sinai, and God met Elijah there, and God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is where we find that response from Elijah that Paul quotes in Romans 11. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah had lost all hope with the given situation. Even though he had a great victory over the prophets of Baal, over King Ahab and Jezebel, 
They didn't turn away from their false gods. They still worshipped Baal. Now the people of Israel had rejected God. They rejected and killed God's prophets. And now, that's where, now they were after Elijah. Now in his eyes, right, in Elijah's eyes, the situation was quite dire. The nation of Israel had rejected God. And God felt all alone. Excuse me, Elijah felt all alone. He thought that he was the only one left in Israel that was faithful to God. Now, you can imagine that hopelessness in that kind of a situation, fleeing from your own country, praying to God that your life would be taken away from you because you felt that the entire nation had turned its back to God and you were the only one who was being faithful to the Lord. But how does the Lord respond when Elijah makes this claim to the Lord. Well, we see what happens next in 1 Kings 19.11. And it's fascinating. Remember, Elijah is on Mount Sinai. He's lodging in a cave, and the Lord is speaking to him there. Now, God tells Elijah to go out, and he says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now, all of that should conjure up some memories to us about another prophet who was on Mount Sinai. And the Lord met with him for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then there were clouds, there were thunder, there was fire on the mountain, and it struck fear in the hearts of everybody who was near. God had met with Moses on that very same mountain And it was a powerful encounter, one that struck fear into the people because God had demonstrated his power, not only in Egypt, but on Mount Sinai as well. But with Elijah and Elijah's encounter with God, God wasn't in the wind. He wasn't found in the earthquake. He wasn't found in the fire. But God was found in the voice of a low whisper. So what gives? Well, God was showing Elijah that God doesn't always work in these mighty and wondrous ways, like in Moses' day or even in the battle that Elijah just had with the prophets of Baal. But God is also working in the voice of a low whisper in the background, working out his sovereign plan in ways that are imperceptible to us, working in ways that we don't understand. Elijah didn't see that, but God lovingly and graciously reminded him of that. So then the Lord asked him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same thing again. He says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed all your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. But the Lord tells him, to return, to go, to anoint a king in Syria, to anoint a new king in Israel, and that Elisha, as the prophet, he would replace Elijah, and that between those two kings, the king of Syria, the king of Israel, and the prophet Elijah, Elisha, that between the three of them, they would put to death all of those who followed Baal. But not only that, 
He also told him that the Lord had a remnant. God had preserved for himself a remnant still within Israel of 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So what does all of this mean? Well, Elijah thought it was a hopeless situation, and he had essentially given up and wanted to die. But God was working through a different plan, a plan that Elijah couldn't perceive. So God had a remnant in Israel that he had kept for himself that was faithful to him and who had not given in to idolatry, the idolatry that took over the nation. And at the same time, God would rid the nation of the worship of Baal. So God had a plan, and he was already working it. The nation had rejected God and went after idols, but the Lord, the Lord had not rejected the nation of Israel as a whole. And the Lord maintained a remnant within the nation of Israel that was faithful to him. Now, Paul says the same thing is happening in his time, right? In Romans 11, verse 5, you can go back to Romans 11. He says, even though the nation of Israel as a whole has largely rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a remnant in Israel at the present time as well. And that remnant belongs to God. This is fascinating, and it really does highlight for us and remind us of the faithfulness of God. So God had a remnant of faithful ones in Elijah's day. God had a remnant of faithful ones in Paul's day. And yes, there is a remnant within the nation of Israel even today. And you know that that continues into the future as we read in the book of Revelation. Now, God is faithful to his word and to his promises. Now, as I was reading and studying and all of this preparing, you know, it really reminded me of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, where it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Lord has always been faithful to his people and to his word, and he will always be faithful. Now, even though this passage in Romans 11 is mainly focused on the nation of Israel, there is a lot of hope and a lot of comfort found in seeing and understanding God's faithfulness to his people on this macro level, seeing how God is faithful to Israel through the centuries and through the millennia to keep his word and to keep his promises, even when they've been incredibly unfaithful to God. Now, that's a huge encouragement to us because it helps us understand who our God is, to know our sovereign and faithful God. Because we've all been there before. We've all been in that place when we want to give up. We feel like a failure, and we can't go on another day. Or we want to give up on evangelizing to that hard-hearted person. Or we want to give up on our obedience to the Lord because it hurts we want to cave in and just compromise at work because of the pressure to do something that would be unfaithful to the Lord. But remember that just as God was in that whisper of a voice, working in the background, preserving a remnant in Elijah's time and in Paul's time and in our time, the Lord is faithful and is working in you in ways that you cannot perceive. He will keep his word and his promises to you. He will preserve you and help you to press on towards him.
It was some years ago that there was a movie that came out named Courageous. Um, it had a character in there whose name was Javier, or as we would say, Javier. <laughs> Javier, Javier was an immigrant struggling to make ends meet, and he was laid off of his job. He was downcast, obviously, and in a situation where he felt ready to give up and to throw in the towel. But he was walking down the street home from being laid off, and he prayed and he asked the Lord what to do because he needed a job. Now, by a set of seemingly random circumstances, he gets mixed up with another Javier, and then he lands a temp job that eventually lands him into a full-time job. Now, one day, the managers call him into his office, and they offer him a new promotion. But it has one condition. Right? He has to falsify some inventory documents so that all of them can make some extra money on the side. Now, he was given one day to think about it, conflicted. He eventually makes his decision not to falsify the documents because he knew, obviously, it was wrong. That would be dishonoring to the Lord. So Javier decided to be faithful to the Lord, and even though he thought that he was surely going to be fired for telling them no, that he wasn't going to do that. Well, it turns out that, of course, he did get the promotion, and on top of that, right, he got a raise because the managers were actually testing him to see if he had integrity. So, yay, Javier, he got it, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so even though Javier was downcast in a dire situation, ready to give up, he didn't know what the Lord was working in the background and that the Lord was being faithful to him, even in the midst of all those complicated circumstances. Even though we can't see all that the Lord is doing in our own circumstances, may, it, may we never give up and may we always trust in him and see that the Lord is faithful. He's working in ways that we don't always see or perceive. I know that the Lord is doing that kind of work in you today and in your circumstances. I know he's doing it in me as well. So back to our passage here in Romans. Paul goes on to say that even though Israel has rejected the gospel in verses 5 and 6, that God has a remnant of believers in Israel who are chosen by grace. Now Paul reiterates that, again, it is by grace and not by works. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, Paul is speaking about the gospel, how one is to stand righteous before God. It is by grace and not by works. And he is speaking about this in particular with the Israelites, who had continually pursued righteousness by works. It was by grace that one was saved in Moses' day. It was by grace that one was saved in Elijah's day. And it's the same in Paul's day and in our day. Now that brings us up to verse 7, which is our second point, that God's faithfulness in the, uh, in the hardening of the non-elect in Israel, and God's faithfulness is shown in the hardening of the non-elect in Israel, verses 7 to 10. So Paul begins by asking in verse 7, So what then? What are we going to make of all of this? What am I to make of all of this? If there is a remnant that's chosen by grace, well, what's going on with the rest of Israel that is rejecting God and is not part of the remnant? And then, in a very matter-of-fact way, he says that, look, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, just to remind you that it that Israel was seeking for is righteousness before God. 
And we trace that back all the way through Romans 10 and beyond. And the problem was that they were seeking to establish their righteousness before God by works and not by faith. Now, for a long time, the nation of Israel had fallen into the sin of idolatry, of pursuing false gods instead of being faithful to the one true God, who first of all made them a people and then delivered them out of Egypt, established them as a nation, and revealed himself to them through his word and through miraculous ways. Now, they turned away from God to follow idols, but after the Babylonian captivity of 70 years, their sin as a nation wasn't any longer pursuing these false gods, but it was legalism. So trying to establish a self-righteousness of their own before God by works instead of by faith. So they were no longer pursuing idols, but they were pursuing legalism and to stand righteous before God in that way. But at the end of the day, all they actually did was they traded one idol for another. Right? They traded trusting in false gods for trusting in themselves. And that has persisted down to this very day. The nation of Israel, for the most part, has continued in that. They continue pursuing legalism. And another significant portion of the nation of Israel today has just pursued apostasy. In other words, they've abandoned God altogether. Now, why is that? Why is it that the nation of Israel continues, for the most part, to reject God? Well, in verse 7, Paul says to the elect that they obtained it by righteousness. They obtained righteousness before God, is what happened with the elect, but the non-elect were actually hardened. And now, as stunning as that sounds, this is a common theme throughout Scripture, the doctrine of election and the discussion of hearts being hardened was pounded home to us in Romans 9, and here it is showing up again. But it, this is nothing new in Scripture. It's found all the way throughout Scripture, right? In the fact that we remember that God chose Jacob over Esau, the fact that God chose Abraham to make a nation of Israel instead of anybody else in the world, he chose Abraham. The fact that God chose Moses to deliver his people the fact that there was a remnant in Elijah's time. This theme of election and hardening comes up over and over again throughout Scripture. But how do we understand, right, the hardening of some? How do we understand that? Right, notice that it is a hardening. So in other words, the people's hearts are already hard. They're just being pushed further into that hardening. But the reality is, is that if no one was elect by God, then no one would be saved. So what happens when man is left to himself? Does he flourish on his own? Is man inherently good? Clearly, the answer to that has to be a resounding no, regardless of what the culture today says. The answer in Scripture is no. All right, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty exhaustive statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, way back in Romans 1, we talked about the people who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, the truth about God, and that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts and to see what 
what happened to them, right? And then it follows through and all the way at the end of chapter 1 in Romans, we see the end result of that when man is left to his own lust in his heart. He says there that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, all of those things obviously are devastating. And this is where man ends up when he's left to himself. But it's God's common grace that keeps every unbeliever from becoming all of those things. But it's only God's saving and loving and electing grace that brings someone to salvation. Right? The hard truth of the matter is that man's heart is wicked. And it's hard. And it only gets harder through their own hardening, but also through the allowance of God hardening them. God allows them to continue to get hardened. We saw that hardening process with Pharaoh in Romans 9 and in the book of Exodus. And so it is with everyone, including the nation of Israel and each and every one of us in this room. And even though it's hard for us to comprehend that, the Lord is displaying his faithfulness through that hardening. How do we see that? We see that through the contrast, through the contrast, because we can see that in his election and in his hardening, the Lord is being faithful to his people because we're no different than anybody else on this planet. We're sinners just like everybody else. But because of God's sovereign election, he sees, sorry, we see his faithfulness to us because we weren't left to continue hardening our own hearts. So through that contrast, God is showing us his faithfulness. He is faithful. Now that helps us to bring in the last few verses, verses 8 through 10. And let's look at those verses again to refresh our memory. Verses 8 through 10 in Romans 11, it says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is very interesting here as Paul goes on to quote what appears to be two more Old Testament passages. But in reality, there's actually three Old Testament passages that are quoted. The first line is from the book of Isaiah, and the next few lines are from the book of Deuteronomy, and then that final quote of David is from the book of Psalms. This is significant because the whole Old Testament is referred to as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And any time you see that, that's referring to the whole Old Testament. So here, Paul is quoting from the whole Old Testament to make the same point, that Israel, in its waywardness and its hardening, has been given eyes that can't see, and ears that won't hear, and a spirit of stupor, or made insensitive to the truth of God. And Paul is pointing out that in his time, a similar spiritual condition exists for the Israelites, the same that it existed in Isaiah 29. The people didn't trust in the Lord. They were therefore further blinded by God or hardened by Him even further. Now at that time in Isaiah, the people in Jerusalem were just going through the motions in their worship. So it was a very mechanical thing for them. 
And God rebukes them in verse 13 of Isaiah 29. And he says, This people draw near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And that should sound familiar to us, because the Lord Jesus used that exact same verse to say and show the exact same spiritual condition within Judaism when Jesus was on the earth. The Jews were still going through that mechanical worship of God and seeking to be righteous before him. But in reality, they were spiritually dead to the truth that God had revealed to them in his word and revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the portion that Paul quotes from 29.4 has the same idea, but described in terms of blindness and deafness. If you go back and you read the context in Deuteronomy, the verse points out that Israel had seen with their eyes the reality of God delivering them out of Egypt, the trials, the signs, the great wonders that were done in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all of the land. It says, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Even though they had seen so much, they had experienced so much of God's grace and the miraculous works and his loving kindness towards them, they still didn't see it. They didn't see it because they didn't have the spiritual eyes to see the truth and they pursued the idols and the false gods. Again, this reveals to us how wicked the human heart really is and how only through God's grace are our spiritual eyes opened so that we can see his magnificence, his beauty, and see the truth and be saved. He has to open our eyes. If not, we're left to ourselves, which only leads to more wickedness. And then the quote from Psalm 39 is basically making the same point with an additional nuance. If you look at the first part of the quote, it says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Now this is pointing out the fact that it's true of every kind of idolatry. Well, how so? What does the table represent? What does it signify? The table is a place of food, and it would represent sustenance or security and safety. But what happens to the table in the Israelites' case? It has become a snare to them, a trap and a stumbling block. The very thing that was supposed to be a nourishment to them and a source of security for them ended up being a source of condemnation. They trusted in their idols. They trusted in their legalism, their own works to stand righteous before God. They thought that those things would provide them security. But in reality, they proved to be a snare and a trap for them. Now, that's true for everyone. So often, the things that we trust in, like security for money, that we trust in people-pleasing, we might trust in connections or education or entertainment, those are the things that will eventually turn into a snare for us. So my father, when he was growing up, he was a poor kid in Nicaragua and grew up without having much by worldly standards. He grew up and he managed to get an education and he worked super hard so that he would never be poor again. That was his goal. 
And he put his trust in his money and in his hard work for security. But one day, the communist Sandinistas took over the country, and my parents had to flee the country. And they lost everything. They had to start all over again. But then, as the man that he was, he continued putting his trust in money and in hard work. And then my sister and I came along, and he didn't pay much attention to us. And, of course, we resented him for that. And the very thing that he was trusting in was proving, actually, to be a snare for him. Because he almost lost all of his money again. He almost lost all of his family by us wanting to leave. And the Lord started taking away his health, too. And so all of those things that he was trusting in was actually becoming a snare for him. Until, one day, by God's grace, the Lord opened his eyes. And he believed in the Lord Jesus, and he was saved. His security blanket, his idolatry of money, had become a snare to him in so many ways. But the Lord was merciful, and he saved him. So I ask you, are there things that you've trusted in in the past only to have those security blankets crumble or taken away? Is there anything that you're trusting in right now that's not God himself, like the comfort of stability or education or having made it to the place you coveted in your career? Or is the Lord beginning and bringing something to your attention and pressing you on to trust Him rather than in the promises of this world? So just as with any idolatry or anything other than God that we put our trust in, those things will become a trap and eventually a source of trouble rather than a source of security. Now, all of these quotes from the Old Testament, all of these verses, they've just highlighted the need for the doctrine of election by God's grace. Because there would be no hope for us if the doctrine of election was not true. We were just as wayward, just as disobedient, insensitive, blind and deaf, and hardened to the truth of God, just as much as the Israelites were. But by God's grace, for most of us in this room, the Lord has elected us. He has opened our eyes and made us to see the truth and to hear the gospel. He's taken away our hearts of stone. He's given us hearts of flesh so that we might see the truth, believe the truth, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he took the punishment that we deserve and that he suffered under the wrath of God and gave us his righteousness imputed to us so that we might stand rightly before God. All of that is a gift of grace from God himself. And there is, if there's anyone, if there's anyone that's here tonight who still hasn't believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, for salvation, to stand rightly before the Lord, let me encourage you to pray to the Lord, to trust in him, put your faith in Christ, turn away from your sins and turn to the only hope you have for salvation in Jesus Christ. As you hear these truths, as you've been hearing these truths, as you continue to hear these truths into the future, I beg you not to harden your heart, but to turn to the Lord if you don't know him yet. And I pray that he will open your eyes and that you will trust in him. And then again, while this text and most of Romans 11 as we go forward is heavily focused on the nation of Israel, I want to conclude 
with several thoughts of encouragement for us. So first, I want you to be encouraged to see God's faithfulness working throughout the whole of Scripture, and in particular to the nation of Israel. Because again, this helps us to see and to understand who God is, to see his character and to see his faithfulness towards his people. Now, Israel was and has been a wayward people. And God said, again, remember, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But God has been faithful to this day by preserving a remnant to himself to fulfill his promises to them in the future. Now, just as God has not cast off Israel in its waywardness and disobedience, God will not cast you off if you are in Christ. So sometimes we sin. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we fall really hard. But God is faithful to preserve you to the end if you are indeed in Christ. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. Not because we deserve it, but because of who God is because he is faithful. And so if you're currently in a state or a season of being unfaithful to God, if you've been trusting in the idols of your own heart like money or escapism or security in this world, I want you to be encouraged that the Lord is faithful to you and encourage you to turn away from those idols and to turn back to the Lord. Now, second, I want to encourage you because as we see God fulfilling his promises to Israel as a nation throughout thousands of years of history, we also know that for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, that God is working all things together for good so that you might be conformed into the image of Christ. So God is aware and he's fulfilling all his promises to Israel on the macro level. And even as God is aware and fulfilling all of his promises to you on the micro level of your life, in every detail of your life, he's working everything for good to transform you into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the same time that he's been faithful to Israel for thousands of years. Even though you might be going through a season of loneliness or unjust suffering or anxiety, the Lord is aware. He sees you. He loves you. He's faithful to you. And he is using all of those circumstances to bring you closer to Christ. Now, he's working. He's working in that whisper of a voice. He's working in those imperceptible ways, in ways that we can't comprehend. And he's working all of those things for your good to make you like his son. Now, only the true and the living God of the Bible could ever do such a thing, working all of the details in history for the faithfulness of him to his people in Israel, but also being faithful to you on the individual level and saving you and making you into the image of Christ, all of these things working together for your good, for his glory. Now that causes my own heart to respond in awe and in worship and desire to glorify the Lord because it is so amazing to see how mighty and faithful the Lord is even in our unfaithfulness, his wisdom, his majesty, everything about him, 
Only the God of the Bible, the true God, could do such a thing. So just as my heart is encouraged to worship him, I hope that your heart, as you meditate on these things, as you ponder these things, as we go through the details of Israel, and that we remember that Christ died for us and he's working in us and through us, and that one day we'll be made like Christ, that you too will also reflect and turn in a heart of worship to our amazing God. Let's pray. Dear gracious Lord, you are incredible. And Lord, even though indeed it is difficult to wrap our minds around the doctrine of election and even the hardening of unbelievers as well, Lord, we magnify you and we only know to respond to you in worship because you are worthy, because you have been faithful even when we've been unfaithful. And Lord, we can't comprehend you. Your ways are above our ways, and your thoughts are above our thoughts. Lord, help us to worship you and to worship you alone forever and ever to the praise of the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen.